Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And this is the particular passage that we want to work with today. We're not going to get in a hurry. We'll just kind of take it slow because the uh, the verse itself, Song of Songs 217, the verse itself kind of makes you want to slow down a little bit because it starts out until the cool of the day when the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter. And if the mountains of Beter don't sound that familiar to you, then, then you're not alone. It didn't sound that familiar to the rabbis who discussed this either. And so there's, there's different ideas about what the mountains of Beter are. Uh, we, won't, we won't get to that today. But what we do want to talk about is the cool of the day when the shadows flee. The cool of the day, we've heard that term before. And the cool of the day can be a welcome time because the intense heat of the sun is, is beginning to set. And if you've ever been down in a desert, you know how welcome it is when that sun finally starts to drop in the sky. And if you've ever watched maybe the sunset from the beach, if you've been able to watch you know, sunset in the west from wherever you were standing, if you paid attention and, and, you know, most of us like sunsets. Some people prefer sunrises uh, and that's fine with me as long as it goes with coffee, but sunsets, they can be particularly soothing. And if you've ever watched, I did this once on the beach in the Tanya and I'm standing there on the beach in my perspective, it's a little bit different as I watch the sun sink into the sea, so to speak, it seems like up until that point, the sun's been moving very slowly. Well, the sun wasn't moving at all, but from our perspective, it feels like that sun is moving. But when the sun finally met the horizon, that's when it seemed really strange, at least from my perspective, it looked like the sun just practically dropped out of sight all of a sudden. I said, hmm. Well, I know this probably has something to do with Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, from your perspective, things can be different, uh, but they really are constant. It's only your perspective that might distort your impressions of what you're seeing or what you're hearing or what you're feeling. And so from my perspective on the beach, it looked as if the sun just hurried out of the sky. It really didn't. It was going at just, you know, the earth is turning at just the same pace it always was. It was simply once the sun got close to the horizon, then I had a better reference point for how fast things were moving. And so it went down really fast. And this is the time of day that the, the verse is talking about. And because of this particular time of day in the human perspective, of how fast the sun drops at that time of day, it takes us in that, I call it a telescope of prophecy to other times where there was a cool of the day or perhaps other times where it was hinted at that a day could hurry or perhaps it might've been word as, worded as if a day could be shortened. Now, We've had we've run into this before. Remember with Joshua, you know, it was a matter of not hurrying up the day, but of holding up the day. So if he can hold up the day, absolutely he can hurry up the day. How that phenomenon happens, we're not given the details. You know, the Torah is not a science book. It's it's uh, it has science in it. It has history in it. It has stories in it. It has proverbs in it. it has all these wonderful things in it. But those don't define what the scripture is trying to do. And so as we think of a time of day when from our perspective, the day would move faster, 
we know it's really just our perspective. It only feels like it's moving faster, but it's welcome because at least in terms of the heat of the day, we want those shadows to flee because when the shadows flee, then we know the, the coolness, the, the evening breeze is about to blow in. And so that you know, heat of exile, that's part of the way that this is viewed, that the heat of the day, not only the night can also symbolize things about the exile, but also the heat of the day can symbolize those um, tribulations, those trials. And we all know that starting from the beginning, we have a lesson to learn from. We should never make a decision in the heat of the day that would wait until the cool of the evening as it pertains to critical choices, right? Because in a strange way, our perspective can sharpen it, it has to do with the time of day that Adam and Eve heard the voice of Elohim walking in the garden. And that's one of the contexts that we want to look at to, to say, well, what's going on here until the cool of the day when the shadows flee? Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter. The gazelle or the young stag, those are seen as particularly fast creatures, they are creatures that definitely do know how to hurry. So if we match this with the, the first part of the verse where it says until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, well, this is the time of day when it looks like the sun hurries down. And it, it, it seems like when the shadows flee, like when they run away. Well, the gazelle and the stag, they're noted for their speed, for their running. And at least in terms of the gazelle, there are certain types of uh, gazelle Probably, um, you know, as you're putting things into Hebrew and English, some things can be lost because, you know, the biblical text doesn't necessarily look at the classifications of animals the same way that we do in English. But the gazelle also related, of course, to the antelope, uh, which technically is where the, the longer uh, horns for a shofar would grow, but they also grow on the gazelle. We're talking about the same type of animal. So you've got the speed of the gazelle and the young stag. And then you have a little hint here that because the gazelle can supply a shofar, that this speed might be in some way marked by the sound of the shofar. All right. So you see where we're going here. We're going to probably start talking about the appointed times again. Um, and we should be talking about the appointed times because we're in a critical time where if people don't know the appointed times, you know, like Yeshua says, what are those who are nursing children in those days? It's, you don't want it to be your first Passover, right? Uh, even though it may be, we might be dragging some folks along like Jacob was dragging the nursing children. So let's, let's break this verse down a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning. It says, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn my beloved. Right. So there's there's going to be two words that we're going to compare to one another as it pertains to the cool of the day, because you've heard the cool of the day before this. You heard that back in the garden. We're going to compare those two phrases and they're very close. But there's going to be a letter in this particular verse in, in Song of Songs 217 that's going to sound like what's used in the garden, but it's going to be one letter off. But the meaning of it is almost identical. We call it an equivalent expression. So until the cool of the day, in Hebrew, that's ad sheyafuach hayom. Ad sheyafuach hayom. Until the puach, right, of hayom, the day. Hayom is also today. Until the the cool of today. But puach sounds like another word you probably already know. You know the word ruach means spirit or breath in Hebrew. Well, this is a sound alike, puach, ruach. Why puach here? Well, there's one element of puach that tips our hand that something prophetic is occurring within these words, 
And not only something prophetic, it's giving you a little hint of something more, I don't want to say sinister, something that's going to be full, again, of expectation about what might be happening here at this turning. So until the puach of the day, one of the meanings of puach, it's not just to breathe or to blow. It can also mean, in addition to being a cool breeze, it can mean to hasten something, to set something aflame, to snort. (laughs) I don't know if it's the kind of snort people do when they laugh really hard, but it it definitely has, and that tends to happen when they start laughing unexpectedly, right? You, you get that big intake of breath and all of a sudden it's, you know, they snort because they're laughing and then you're laughing because they're snorting and then you're all laughing. And it was just because of a snort. But this puach, a little bit different from the ruach. Yes, it does also mean to breathe or to blow, but it's like a hurried aspect of this breath. It's something that can hurry along. And in some other contexts, we might see it as like a bellows. You know how a a blacksmith will use a bellows to heat up a fire to get the fire hotter, right? This is maybe where it's getting the the use of to set something aflame, because the more you concentrate air into a, a fire, then the hotter, even if it's cool air, the more you concentrate that oxygen into that flame, the hotter the flame is going to get. And it's also a speaking or an uttering, again, because of the movement of the breath, of the breathing. So, yeah, it's pretty close to ruach. But because it has the Hebrew letter peh and puach rather than the resh and ruach, peh literally means a mouth, right? So puach suggests there's more in terms of the speaking aspect of breath than say ruach. All the things we've just learned about puach. Well, it's a it's a breathing or a concentration of breath or speech that's going to fan a flame, right? So if it says until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn my beloved. When the beloved turns, the suggestion is yes, there is a cool, there's a, a relief for the bride of Messiah when the cool of the day sets in. But at the very same time, as the beloved turns, and that that Hebrew verb there for turning is sov. And we're going to look at where you've heard that verb before too. It's going to take you right back to the garden again, because it's going to describe the rivers of Eden and how they move, they survive. So there's going to be a turning of the beloved. It's a turning that the bride seeks him to do. She wants him to hurry, hurry up and turn. But at the very same time, there's the implication that this particular breath or blowing of the day could also be blowing in and fanning in the flames of judgment, right? We've talked about that before, how the prophets say, you know, at the time your watchmen get up on the walls, that's when great confusion sets in. So we say, well, it looks like, you know, the world's beginning to turn to Torah. But why is the world in the greatest confusion of all right now? Well, that's exactly what the prophet said would happen. At the time that the watchmen get back up on the walls, then at the very same time, that's when the world is going to fall into the deepest of confusions. And so as this flame is fanned, the peh suggests it's going to be through speaking aspect of breath that whatever is about to happen at this turning is going to happen. So let's go back to the first time we heard this, at least in English. It takes us back to Genesis 3.8. It says, uh, Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, let's just do a little practical, you know, what can we learn from this before we get down into the, the you know, technicalities of the Hebrew? We know that human beings in scripture 
are often symbolized by trees. So if we can draw a lesson from this, when we sin, sometimes we try to hide ourselves from the presence of the Lord by hiding among other people. <laughs> we think we're lost in the crowd. We're not lost in the crowd. He knows exactly where we are. So when he says, you know, Echa, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know where we are. He, he planted the trees of the garden. He's saying, do you know where you are? Do you understand the height from which you've fallen? And so that's just a, a very practical way of looking at this, is that when we sin, and we're aware that we have sinned, see, if the man and, and uh, woman did not know they had sinned, why would they be hiding, right? If they're unclear, see, it, you know, the, the, the conversation with the serpent, it, it makes it sound like, oh, maybe they're just not real clear. But by the time they hear the voice, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, they know it was wrong. And so they're hiding. Now, the word there for the cool of the day, it's going to sound very much like what we just read. And Hebrew, it's Ruach hayom. If we were to translate out that, you know, just literally, it would be, uh, to the spirit today, right? To the spirit today. So the cool of the day can be ruach, spirit, or the cool of the day can be puach. So what's the difference? Well, now ruach, again, it means breath, wind, or spirit. You don't necessarily get the idea from the different definitions that it has that sense of hurriedness about it. But it is a little bit different. I mean, it's not puach, it's ruach. So the first letter of the word is different from puach. Puach, pe, mouth. Ruach, resh. It usually means head, rosh. And that hints at not just authority, but it hints at spiritual authority. So our precedent here is the first cool of the day that we see, we see that Adam and Eve can actually hear the sound of spiritual authority walking. And they know they violated, they've rebelled against that authority. But with the cool of the day we get in the Song of Songs, it's changed a little bit. It's puach. It's, it's more that fanning the flame sort of aspect of the cool of the day. It doesn't seem like it's an important difference between the two, but when scripture uses two different words, when it could use the same word, we want to pay attention. But it can also be used, ruach can also be used in the context of wrath, all right? So there is enough of a similarity between the two of them that we would want to call them equivalent expressions, right? So we, we've got an expectation. When we enter into the cool or the hurrying of the day, when the sun looks like it's going down faster, we have this expectation that we might hear the voice of Elohim walking. And it's interesting that his voice walks because he's, he's not uh, physical. He's not a physical being. He's a spiritual being. So you would expect to hear the voice walking in the ruach right, of the day. And so think of what the spirit of the day is. Uh, the day is often associated with the Shabbat, or the day can be associated with the Feast of Trumpets, or it can be associated with Yom Kippur. You just have to kind of know the, the, the context of how it's being used. But remember, in the first mention, Ruach, cool of the day, Ruach, it imparted fear that Elohim's authority had been violated, they had sinned, and now there would have to be a reckoning. There would have to be an accountability for that sin. On the other hand, if we think of the Song of Songs, even though there's a hint there that there might be some fanning of flames to follow, Puach, because it's a voice, it's not so much his authority as it is his, the, the mouth, the voice that's emphasized. And so 
there is a voice of Elohim, which is definitely judgment. But there is also a voice of Elohim that proclaims the good news, primarily through Yeshua. And so when we think of the voice of the shofar, you know, it imparted terror into the Israelites at Mount Sinai. They were terrified of that sound because they could see the sound. You know, how do you see a sound? You can, apparently. So there's an anticipation there that even though it's wonderful and terrifying, it, it could also kill you, which is what we see happening with Adam and Eve. They're about to be exiled into the realm of the those who die, into the mortal realm instead of living eternally. And so the Ruach can impart a fear of Elohim's authority in discovering our sin. But with Puach, we can also see that at least for the, the righteous one who's begging, you know, come on, turn my beloved, turn back this way. She wants the Puach because there is a good news that's going to be spoken as he turns. So at the very same time he turns with the good news for the righteous, we get the implication that the wicked are going to be destroyed. Because again, the, the gazelle is going to be associated with a shofar. And the shofar is going to proclaim, it's going to announce the appointed times. The appointed times for those who love the one who set the appointed times those are days of joy. There's joyful shouting that goes with the sound of the shofar. But for those who have refused the authority of Adonai, the sound of that shofar is terrifying. And so there's a hastening associated with puach. And this is very consistent with our expectation of the footsteps of Messiah coming upon the mountains with good news. He's going to breathe out the good news. And part of that good news is the suggestion that the days are shortened for the sake of the elect. Right? He says, you know, if those days hadn't been shortened, nobody could be saved. Is it going to be that bad? But he says, for the elect's sake, the days are going to be shortened. This relates to the cool of the day idea that there is a time in this appointed day where it's going to either literally hurry, it's either literally going to move faster, or at least from our perception, it's going to appear to move faster. We're not really sure how that works. Like I say, it's not a science book. So let's look at another place where puach, that verb was used. Ezekiel 21.31 says, I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow on you. That's afiach. That's the same root word, puach. Of course, it's, it's going to be in a future tense there, afiach. He says, I will blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and I will hand you over to brutal men, craftsmen, of destruction. Right. So the craftsman is a principle we've been looking at in these footsteps of Messiah, that ultimately there are four craftsmen or Charashim. The, the proto-prophecy proto that we have of the Charashim goes back to the building of the tabernacle. When Betzalel and Aholiab, they were two craftsmen who helped to um, do all the craftsmanship so that the tabernacle, the Mishkan, could be erected and so that the mercy seat could be set up. Remember, last week we talked about how at the sound of the, the teruah of the shofar on the, the Feast of Trumpets, that Adonai, he descends from the throne of judgment with a shout and ascends the throne of mercy. And at some future Feast of Trumpets, the implication is we when we hear the shout, when we hear the, the teruah of the shofar, that as he goes up onto that mercy seat, that we'll be gathered up there for judgment before the mercy seat, as opposed to the judgment seat, which is reserved for the rebellious. Those who think they can hide from Adonai, the, the ones that, you know, we'll look at later, who say, you know, to the rocks and the mountains fall on us, they'll try to hide in caves. You know, they're going to realize how silly they were and thinking they could just hide among the trees of the garden and he wouldn't see them. But we've got the two craftsmen. And if you add 
Moses and Aharon, who seem to have had an advisory role and what went on. We might even look at it as four craftsmen of the Mishkan. But in Revelation last week, we took a, a look at our old friends, the four craftsmen, and we could see at least in three of those four riders of the horses in Revelation, they fit very well, either things directly out of Yeshua's mouth or out of the mouth of the prophets. So Ezekiel is prophesying of this cool of the evening, um, this hurrying of the day, puach, and now he is also going to associate it with the fire of wrath. When these craftsmen, apparently, you know, you've got craftsmen who are, you know, divinely appointed by the Holy Spirit to help build up. But he says, I want to hand you over to brutal men of destruction. And with that idea, you can see where the fanning the flames goes along with puach right? That, that there's going to be a season of judgment. So the, the idea here is if, as we telescope that prophecy out, it explains the four writers of the apocalypse. Um, and we know that ultimately these four craftsmen will be dispatched in order to, you know, kick off these appointed times. So there, we're going to look at Habakkuk, who's told to write down something of a vision that we're interested in. But before we do that, let's look at Revelation 119, because John is seeing a vision, right? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That, that sounds familiar, right? In the cool of the day, in the cool of the day, what day? The day, Hayom, today, right? Today. If you hear his voice, it's today, uh, even though there are specific appointed times associated with the day. But John is seeing a vision, and out of the 10 words for prophecy, vision is thought to be the harshest because uh, the prophet is forced to actually see what he is prophesying, not just say it. He has, it's chazon, he's, he's seen it. And this is exactly what happens to John. It says, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things, right? So this vision that John has, it's he's actually seen it and therefore he experiences it with those people to whom it's happening in the future, even down to like he's told to eat this little scroll and he can literally feel its effects on his body. But they say this is the most difficult of prophecies for prophets because they they experience it, they see it. Uh, they don't just know about it. They don't just hear about it. They don't just talk about it. They're put into the into the vision itself. And so this type of prophecy is the harshest, um, but it's a very powerful form of prophecy. And if we count up the times that John is told to write what he's seen, and this most powerful of the 10 types of prophecy, we see 12 times, at least. There might be more. You might go in there and count them, recount them. I counted 12 times in Revelation that John was commanded to write out portions of this vision. So as it was considered very important for John to write this down. Okay. So let's you know, kind of review the, the four craftsmen. If we wanted to put it into modern terms, you say, well, explain this to me in modern terms, I can understand. There's such a thing as four altered judgments, four altered judgments as prophesied from the Torah all the way to Revelation. And if you're not familiar with the four altered judgments, of course, it's going to be the wild beast, the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, Right. So if we want to put this in modern terms, the white horse rides out. Okay, we'll, we'll use him instead of Zechariah because the, the order of the horses is a little bit different in Zechariah. Um, but let's use Revelation as our example. We're going to have some order of the wild beasts, the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. So these four horses are described to us with four different colors. 
the first horse that goes out is a white horse. I say, well, what is this? Well, the, the rider is wearing a crown, right? So this craftsman, as he goes out, part of his job is to craft the tabernacle, to craft the body of Messiah, but at the same time to render judgment upon the rebellious. He's, he's holding a bow, right? A bow in Hebrew is keshet. But when you string a bow and you shoot with a bow, that's yarah. And that's the root of the Torah is yarah, to shoot with an arrow, to hit the mark. And so it tells us the, the terms of judgment as the white horse goes out, that the world is about to be judged according to the Torah to see if they've hit the mark. So let's just say this is the plague of wild beasts, right? A virus. You know, we got bugs going out, causing uh, plagues. Then you see a red horse ride out. You see the sword. And he's going to take peace from the earth, just like Yeshua said, I came to, I didn't, you know, I'm going to take peace from the earth. I'm going to turn families against one another because some will stand with me and some will not. So that horse goes out. If we look at our headlines, Okay, the ride horse, the, the red horse is riding right now. He's running. All right, we've got a white horse out. We've got a plague of wild beasts with a virus. Now we've got the red horse running with the sword. We've got wars and rumors of wars. And then we'll see the black horse come out, which is famine, ra'ev, or hunger, right? And we can see that this is going to come on the heels of sword. Why does it come on the heels of sword? Because sword destroys your crops. Sword destroys shipping lanes. Sword destroys uh, commercial routes. Um, and this is where, you know, the, the plague of wild beasts had already disrupted it. Because wild beasts, it's not just literal wild beasts like, say, a, a virus. It can also mean human beings who attack other human beings like in a riot. Uh, Paul said, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. These were the craftsmen who attacked him for preaching the gospel. So they attack him. They're, they're jealous because, you know, he's cutting in on their commercial activity. So you see, you know, the wild beast is not disconnected from the black horse famine. You see how they're all working together? They're all working in synchronization, just like it's showing you here on this menorah graphic. As they're moving around, it's like, like one horse rides out and then he's done. He just keeps circling because there's one in the menorah, there's one piece of beaten gold. So as we're looking at this pattern of, you know, Yeshua is really careful to, to put the vision of Revelation in the context of the seven branch menorah. So as you're looking at the graphic of these horses running around, you can see that, you know, just because you only see one horse run out of the barn, it doesn't mean that there's not three other horses running. They'll be running simultaneously. So there's going to be a, a trigger, right? In our generation, we saw a trigger of uh, a virus, a wild beast. And at the very same time, this was following hard on the heels, at least in the in the North America, the rioting, right? Looting and rioting. It, it goes along with that on the wild beasts. Now we're seeing the sword. We're seeing um, violence on a wider scale. The predictions now are of famine that worldwide over the next few years, things could get increasingly worse because of the lack of fertilizer, the disruption of shipping. Um, the disruption of the planting areas, the breadbasket areas, and so forth. And then finally, the, the fourth altar judgment is going to be pestilence. And in Greek, that fourth horse, it's chloros, which means yellowish green, yellowish green. It actually corresponds to the color of leprosy in a beard. It goes back to the mouth. Again, the beard frames the mouth, it's speech that has set all this in motion. And so thinking of a green horse, I, I keep hearing that word in the news too. 
green this, green that, green this. Well, we can't do this because of green or we're doing that because of green. I'm thinking, well, my goodness, you know, sounds like there's a green horse running around somewhere. But that at least gives you an example. If you wanted to point to this pattern and, and show somebody this pattern in Revelation, you can show them it's not that mysterious because it's been prophesied since the beginning in one form or another as the four altar judgment, as the four craftsmen, past plagues, and so forth. It's, it's not that big a mystery. So let's go on to uh, Habakkuk's prophecy, because remember, John was told very clearly 12 times to write this down. And he's writing down the most powerful form of prophecy, which is vision or seeing. So here's what Habakkuk writes in chapter two, verses one through four. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the watchtower. And I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how I may reply when I am reprimanded. This is going to be a key. When you get up on the watchtower, you might feel like you've arrived, like, oh, gee, I finally understand everything. I can see both sides of this wall, right? <laughs> you know, I understand Sabbath. I understand the fees. I understand how to eat kosher. Oh, gee, you know, happy me. I'm on the watchtower now. I finally figured it out. And what Habakkuk says is, be careful to whom much is given, much is required, because he's going to get you up on that wall and then keep reprimanding you. Then the Lord answered me and said, write down the vision. That's what he told John, write down this vision 12 times. He says, inscribe it clearly on tablets so that the one who reads it may run. Well, walking is not running. Running is going faster. The perception is that the one who reads it may feel like going faster. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hurries toward the goal, and it will not fail. Now, watch how he shifts right here. It's like he contradicts himself. Though it delays, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay long. You see, now, wait a minute, Habakkuk. You need to make up your mind here. If you're telling me it's hurrying toward the goal, and it will not delay long, but then right in the middle there, he says, though it delays, wait for it. What are you doing, Habakkuk? Is it something that's delayed or is it something that hurries? And our answer is going to be yes. But here's what we need to know. If we're up on the watchtower, he's going to reprimand us. He's going to look for any fragments, shreds, residue of unrighteousness. And so he says, behold, as for the impudent one, again, the one who will sit right up there and say, well, you know, I can tick off the boxes here. I'm good. He said, no, I'm going to your heart. Why are you ticking off the boxes? Do you love the one who gave you these commandments? Are you simply like sitting in a high place looking down on everybody else? He says his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. He will live. The implication, the impudent one won't. <laughs> so just being up on the watchtower is no guarantee. You, you, you have to give him your heart. And so the, the thing we want to look at is how can it seem to delay, but at the same time, hurry because of our cool of the evening implication. It's something that hurries up, right? So let, let's look at it again. Again, Habakkuk 2.3, it says, for yet, and that word there, or yet, it, it's odd. It can mean another, or it can mean more. So what he can be saying is for another vision, or there is more to the vision for the Moed, and it will hurry to the end. Habakkuk is telling us that might be that there's more than one fulfillment of what he's seeing here in his vision. There's going to be a vision that seems like it takes forever. There's going to be a fulfillment that seems like it takes forever in, in human years. But he says, but there's another aspect to this vision. And that aspect of the vision, it will hurry to the end. And that's exactly what Yeshua talked about, you know, unless those days had been shortened. 
right? So here's Mark 13, 19. Here's what he says. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation. Right? He points us right back to the garden where we first heard that cool of the evening phrase. It has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days, right? And you can see the tense shifts here in the text. You're like, okay, it sounds like he's talking about a future event. And then Yeshua kind of backs up and he starts talking about something as if it occurred in the past, unless he had shortened it. No life would have been saved, but he shortened the day. So did he do it in the past or did, is he going to do it in the future? Perhaps what Yeshua is doing here is calling to mind the prophecy of Habakkuk. Those listening to it are going to say, hey, wait a minute, we've heard this before. Right, because Habakkuk talks about, you know, though it delays, wait for it because it's going to hurry. And Yeshua is telling them there will be a future tribulation. It's not happened yet, he said, but there will be a future tribulation. And he's going to shorten those days. But he says it's for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? Remember what Habakkuk says the righteous shall live by his faith. What happens to the impudent one? Apparently not, right? So there's this idea of shortening the time of judgment. And you'll read this in the Midrash, in the Jewish literature frequently. They'll refer to our, our prototype for this idea back in Egypt. So much of what they refer to is based in the experience in Egypt. And roughly there were 400 years of slavery predicted in Egypt. Actually, it's going to be 410, 410. Uh, but let's say 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That was the prophecy at the covenant between the pieces, right? Abraham was told, this is what's going to happen to your descendants. But as it turns out, the time was cut in half, right? So the way this happened, the, as the, the rabbis are calculating out the years and so forth, the the Hebrews expected that they were going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and 10 years. But it turns out they were only there 200 in, in slavery. And they say the reason for this is they did not understand when the clock actually started. He hit the start button, they say, when Isaac was born. This is a prophecy to Abraham's offspring. And they point out that Isaac and Jacob and their father Abraham they were strangers and sojourners in the land. So they were, in a sense, exiles in their own land because it really wasn't theirs yet. They sojourned there. And so they say, he hit the start button when Isaac was born. And therefore, half the time had passed when they went into slavery in Egypt, when they went into exile in Egypt. So they were first exiles in their own land. But those were credited against the full sentence, kind of like time served in jail. You don't have to, you know, serve the whole sentence if you've already spent 90 days in jail. They'll subtract that 90 days from your sentence. And they say this is how the days were shortened, that the Hebrews just weren't aware that the clock had already started. So to them, that was very good news. That's perhaps one explanation is that when we think the end of time is, no matter when we think it is, there's no shortage of people out there who have ideas about when the, you know, that last trumpet's going to sound. It might be that they're not as clever as they think they are because at some point in prophecy that we didn't pick up on, he hit a start button. And this is the way they look at a time, times, and half a time in, in the rabbinic literature. They say that there was an exile at the beginning, you've, you've got an, an exile with the first temple. Then you've got an exile with the second temple. But then they say there's an exile of half a time. And they, they say in these apocalyptic references of a time, times, and half a time, that the last time 
which is going to characterize the footsteps of Messiah, that for the righteous, like Havkuk was saying, the, the righteous person will live by his faith. Yeshua is saying those days will be shortened for the sake of the elect, that they will only serve half a time of this harsh tribulation. Now, it doesn't mean they won't be around for the other half a time. It simply means that the nature of their presence for tribulation would be half the time. And then when the rest of the world goes into the other half of time, it will be great tribulation for them. But for the righteous, they say he will live. That for them, these days are shortened, if that makes sense. So Yeshua is kind of talking about something that, that the Jews of the first century, they already have a reference for it. Right? So let's go back again to our the verse we started out with. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn or sove, my beloved. Turn, my beloved. And so that's coming from sabav. Sov, it's an imperative form like do it now. <laughs> um, so sabav is the actual uh, shoresh or root of that verb. And it means to turn or to circle around. You first saw that verb, whether you knew it or not, uh, in the Garden of Eden because the rivers circled the Garden of Eden. And then Yeshua identified himself as the life-giving river at the Feast of Sukkot. So what is he talking about here? Well, he stands up at the Feast of Sukkot, right? You keep Sukkot in remembrance of when he brought you out of Egypt at Pesach, at Passover. And then you've got your other feasts that are set on that seven-branch menorah, and you see all of a sudden that the seven feasts of Adonai, they run in a circuit. They run in a circle. They turn about constantly, and there's no exit point. They, they just keep going around year after year after year, right? And so Yeshua says, hey, I'm that river of living water. I am the spirit that runs through your feasts. And so come to me and drink, and you're never going to thirst again. That's pretty good news, right? He says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Uh, as it turns out, the tree of life was important, but you know what? So were the rivers of living water, the, the spirit that sustained them. It says this, he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him are yet to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So Yeshua is saying, yeah, there was a tree of life in the garden, but he says, I was the river of life. I'm the word of God. The spirit of that word that went round and round and round in the garden, it survived. And so when it says, you know, until the cool of the evening, so saying, turn around. What do those rivers do in their circuits? They just keep turning, just like the days and the nights. They just keep turning. You know, you don't hit pause on them unless you're the one who created them. And so it goes back to who can make the sun stand still? The one who created the sun. Who can make a day hurry? Who can make the sun appear to go faster? the one who created the days, the one who created the earth, right? So it's possible, again, that these righteous who are living by their faith may find that their days are significantly shortened, maybe even cut in half, just like the Egyptian exile, right? So if you turn to the message to the assembly of Thyatira, in Revelation. It's the fourth assembly. And so the message to that assembly will correspond to the fourth feast, which is Shavuot. And it commemorates the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And he warns this assembly at Thyatira that if they don't repent, that they'll be thrown onto a sickbed and they will be thrown into great tribulation 
Now, there's no doubt there's been tribulation up to that point. If you look at the messages like to Ephesus and to Pergamum and to Smyrna, you can see, oh, yeah, there's tribulation. But see, at the midway point, at the half a time, at Thyatira, the fourth assembly, he's saying, okay, things are about to turn here. And there is about to be great tribulation. And from there, if you look at those seven feasts, from there you would move on to Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets, where you would hear the last trump, the last shofar. And then you would go to Yom HaKippurim, where you would hear the great trump, right? And so as it's saying, there's going to be great tribulation in those days, but not for everyone. The implication is those who repent, maybe they're not absent completely, but they are absent from this great wrath. And if if you'll kind of go back through our archives on the footstep study, you can see that what the Jewish sages predicted based on these prophecies is that, yes, there will be tribulation up until the fourth year. In fact, there will be terrible famines up until the fourth year. And they say at that midpoint, at that half a time point, then the righteous begin to see the light of the kingdom growing with each year until the seventh. They, you know, they pull out and start to pull up, whereas the rest of the world begins to descend down into this great wrath and great tribulation. So, you know, is that is there a correlation there? I don't know. We're just kind of throwing these scriptures out there and throwing the pattern and the principles out there, and and we'll just have to kind of wait and see. But the feasts really are the key to discerning these times and when a time might be hurried, right? Because we know that Messiah is the one being sought to turn around, to sow, and he already does that. He does that for his chosen ones in the feasts, just like you saw in the graphic. He's turning round and round and round. And at some point, he will make a turn and begin to perform end of days judgments according to those appointed times. And so if we look at the bookends of Pesach and Sukkot as you know the seven feasts, if we were to turn those feasts on themselves, if, if, if Shavuot were a hinge, because it's the fourth one of a seventh branch menorah, if Shavuot were to turn on itself, which commemorates the giving of the Torah, then you kind of get a visual as to maybe why we keep Sukkot in commemoration of when we came out of Egypt. Is it possible that somehow... He is making the full time of the feast for the righteous and a half a time. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.